American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. Jeannie Addy of Long Island University discusses the issues central to the American Civil War and provides a close reading of the Gettysburg Address for New York City social studies teachers. This talk took place on October 13, 2006 at the Graduate Center. What I'm going to focus on today are a few different areas of the a Civil War. <clears throat> one of them, of course, is often one of the thorniest problems, which is why did people fight in the Civil War? Why did average northern and southern white men enlist to go to war? Um, both northern and southern soldiers, as well as women and others at the home front, um, believed that they were fighting for freedom. Uh, so the question then becomes, what sort of freedom were they fighting for? And more specifically, um, what did people mean by freedom? One of the trickiest problems for historians has been how to explain why non-slaveholding Southern whites joined the Confederacy and fought um, for the Confederacy. At the same point, what imperatives drove the average Northern white man to risk his life to oppose secession? Um, and then finally, we're going to look at the, at the Gettysburg Address in some detail, which of course is prompted by the Emancipation Proclamation and how that the emancipation of slaves revolutionized the nature of the nation that the war was being fought over, and how indeed Lincoln's articulation of this new nationhood um, in the Gettysburg Address redefined the definition of freedom. Probably no word has been more debased in recent years than that of freedom. Once in 2003, the House of Representatives declared that the congressional cafeteria would sell freedom fries instead of French fries, and would sell freedom toast instead of French toast, you knew we were on a slippery slope that would empty the term out of any real meeting. In downtown New York, as you probably are aware, we may be getting the Freedom Tower that will, not surprisingly, have 1,776 floors. But in 19th century America, uh, freedom was a more meaningful, although clearly a more fraught term. As I said before, both sides fought the Civil War for freedom. Um, and the question then becomes, what kind of freedom were they fighting for? What did American, where did the American idea of freedom come from? Um, and what did the American idea of freedom produce? And here you have to go back a bit, and I know you've already done some of this earlier history, but I do have to take you back to the colonial era and to the era of the American Revolution, because that's where this notion that this is a country built on freedom or liberty, and to some degree those words are, are interchangeable, um, sets the stage for what's going to be the unraveling of this, of this uh, country. Because from the very beginning, there is a linkage between freedom and whiteness. And as many historians have so brilliantly demonstrated, um, starting in the 17th century, it is very clear that there's a basic formula that has repeated itself over and over again in American history. And that is that the freedom of white men has been premised on the unfreedom of black men. And obviously I'm using men in the generic sense here. Um, 
The generation that fought for independence, of course, knew and was familiar with all sorts of unfreedom. Um, there was slavery. There was indentured servitude. Um, there was forms of apprenticeship that were clearly forms of unfreedom. Most indentured servitude and, and apprenticeship had disappeared by around 1800, certainly in indentured servitude. Slavery, as you know, of course, endured and grew. But as white men claimed freedom and liberty for themselves, from the very beginning, if you will, and long before the Constitution, they cast those of African ancestry and Indians as unfit for freedom. Um, and what blacks and Indians shared was clear. Was clear. They were not masters over their natural life. They lacked rationality. Um, so that the very development of Republican ideology and a white national identity went hand in hand. From Bacon's Rebellion to the Constitution to the expansion of suffrage in the antebellum period, universal white manhood suffrage laws, to um, Jim Crow legalized segregation, this formula has repeated itself over and over. In fact, what is so interesting um, to see in terms of the most current and I think compelling thought about understanding the origins of racism, while we, you know, while we have often been teaching that racism really emerged as a defense of slavery, right? Because nobody for thousands of years had any, no one ever had to defend slavery. Slavery existed all over the globe, it existed for thousands of years. The Bible, you know, condoned it. Most religious thinkers had condoned it. No one ever had to defend what was obviously natural. Every society had hierarchical forms. Slavery was part of every society and every continent. There was no need to defend what was, what was normal, right? It only had to be defended when it was attacked. And the first time it's attacked in human society is in this late 18th and early 19th century abolitionist movement. That's when you have the development of a pro-slavery um, ideology. Because no other slaveholding class ever had to develop a pro-slavery ideology. Um, <clears throat> but, the, but the thing I wanted to get to here is that what we now understand, though, is in order to think about the growth of racism, it may have had less to do even than uh, with a defense of slavery than with a defense of freedom. Because how did those framers, that generation, create a society which embodied these concepts of freedom in, in, in a society that was a slave society? How did they deal with that contradiction? Well, they dealt with it very explicitly. Thomas Jefferson, of course, had the most tortured mind about this. And he twisted his brain around it, and he didn't quite get around it, and it was slippery, and he, you know, and this is in the notes on the state of Virginia. But the fact of the matter is that the only way you could articulate that freedom was to develop this ideology of racism. Because you had to explain why some people in the land could not have freedom, could not be qualified for freedom, right? And they could not be qualified for freedom because of, a, of an ideology that said they were essentially inferior, by nature inferior, unqualified in all kinds of ways, so that what this what the emerging thought was saying was, it is not we who are denying freedom. It is nature. We didn't create the difference. Nature created the difference. It gets you off the hook. If you're going to create the society that supposedly is about freedom, and yet at the same time is a slave society, that's how it worked. So that to understand how racism emerges here, 
it is hand in hand. I mean, one thing I think that I know from my days in high school, which was, we know, a long, long time ago, um, that I always bring to my college students, which is you can't, and most of those students are actually are planning to become high school teachers, and, or many of them are shifting careers, the graduate students, to, you know, to become teachers. And I said, you know, too often it's been presented that America was the freest country in the world except for slavery. And really, that is not how it can be understood. America was the freest country in the world because of slavery. It's because of, because in a society where slavery existed, freedom had a special sweetness. Those 18th century American, white Americans, knew how sweet freedom was because they could see unfreedom. Slaves, it needs to be noted, always believed that natural rights extended to them. You would be hard-pressed to find any evidence anywhere, no one has ever found it, that slaves bought in to the racist ideology that, that, was defi that defined their position in society. They rejected scientific racism that emerges in the, um, around the turn of the 19th century that came up with all these crazy ideas to prove this biological essential difference and inferiority. They rejected the religious interpretations for their enslavement, and they never embraced the notion of a biological hierarchy. And when, even if you start with David Walker's appeal, right, 1829, you see, uh, you see that articulation of, uh, of an American black man saying, look, we deserve all the rights of white men, understanding the Enlightenment philosophies to a T, right? There is no lack of understanding what, and, and of course, as slavery developed, it, even from the very beginning, but certainly as it developed in the 18th century and certainly by the 19th century, if anyone understood and had deep understanding of the meaning of freedom, it was slaves. Because not only did they understand their own condition and unfreedom, but they were careful, astute observers of the life of free men. So they knew exactly what freedom meant they knew exactly what they expected of freedom if and when it came, right? And there was very little, there wasn't, it wasn't any sort of searching around or, or fuzzy thinking or, gee, I, ha I wasn't prepared. Total preparation, complete clarity, as it would be for anyone who was enslaved in an otherwise free society or nominally free society, um, one would understand what freedom meant because they could observe free people and see what they could do. The issue of slavery had the potential to destroy the Union from the moment the Union was created. Um, as you realize, of course, that the Constitution itself was a compromise, a, a hard-fought, undemocratically uh, created compromise in that Philadelphia room where they nailed the windows shut and it wasn't open for public debate what they were doing when they created the Constitution, right? And they nailed the windows shut and they made sure that no one could hear what was going on because they, nobody knew they were going to just throw out the Articles of Confederation and start anew, right? Um, but from the very beginning, it was a debate over slavery and over the interests of those, those who dom, you know, dominated um, the benefits of slavery, of the slaveholders versus the northern merchants, let's say. And the compromise, and this country was nothing but compromises from the Constitution until the Civil War, and those compromises held it kind of together until then, until it finally couldn't hold it anymore. It was, 
It was a series of band-aids that increasingly became more sectional, more inflamed, more difficult, and then the thing fell apart. The three-fifths compromise, obviously, is the first place where you see the compromise in the Constitution. The language in the Constitution about ending the slave trade, again, so there is that, there, that was a, it was in some ways it's a funny kind of negotiated compromise because really those who were most in favor of ending the slave trade were slave owners um, because they understood that if you continue to allow African imports, the value of their slaves would go down. And to agree that those importations would stop would guarantee the value of their slaves would go up. The Constitution faced some scary moments. The Union faced a lot of scary moments long before the Civil War. The Missouri Compromise, right? This whole question of taking on every time new territory is, is acquired or taken by the U.S., the question then becomes, of course, how does it come into the Union, slave or free, and what does it do to the balance of power in Washington, and blah, blah, blah. The Missouri Compromise, as you know, when passed in 1820, which created that, that fictional line, right, at the 3630, um, that said anything coming in above that line that we came to know as the Mason-Dixon line would come in as a free state, anything below as a slave state. Even Thomas Jefferson, the tortured Thomas Jefferson, wrote at that moment these, you know, these alarming words. But this momentous question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once a death knell of the Union. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. He understood it was a fire bell in the night. He knew this question of slavery was going to rip the country apart. He could see this in 1820. It was only, you know, it couldn't, it's not that it could have happened at any time. Things can only happen when they happen. But this, but this issue was already renting the Union apart. Now, when <clears throat> Lincoln is elected, that obviously prompts uh, secession. And as you know, um, he is elected... Um, <clears throat> By, on November 6th, on November 7th, the news has spread by telegraph wires across that he has won. And the Southern fire eaters, who had been ranting a lot about secession, um, start immediately um, going into action. South Carolina, of course, being the most radical of all the Southern states. Um, one of my favorite lines about South Carolina, actually, which was uttered long before the secession crisis um, by I can't remember whom that said South Carolina is, is too small to be a country and too large to be an insane asylum. Um, and um, South Carolina legislature meets on January 8th uh, to discuss uh, secession and, and the other states do as well. And what's interesting about these secession conventions um, is that most of them are not open to a general vote. In most states, in most of these in many states, not all states, but in many states, in fact, it's never open to the general public. The average Southerner is not voting on whether they're going to secede. This is done by a small, non-democratically elected group of delegates who get together, again, behind closed doors, as it were, and debate amongst themselves. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't debate. There were unionists. Georgia has unionists and, um, you know, and secessionists at each other about whether or not it is good to secede or not, Right. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit in a, in a moment about unionist sentiment in the South and, um, and why that can't be minimized. In fact, Lincoln, arguably, that was one of his big flaws um, initially, which was he overestimated union sentiment throughout the Civil War and the beginning of the war. He really thought 
that the that the 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 well of union sentiment unionist sentiment was such that that the that the, the south would come to its senses earlier or that he would have enough support among unionists in the south um, so he did overestimate it but we sometimes underestimate um, the degree to which there was unionist sentiment and it didn't mean that it was anti-slavery sentiment right um, Secession rallies did happen, though. There was certainly public rallies for secession in places like Alabama and Mississippi. And what a lot of states, particularly South Carolina, wanted to do was they wanted to rush a decision about secession so it wouldn't get too far flung across the state. There wouldn't be too much debate. There wouldn't be too much time lost. And they wanted to precipitate other, other states into action. And so within a month of South Carolina's uh, uh, move to secession, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi call for similar elections. Um, in Texas, um, the unionist governor, Sam Houston, decides to hold off, and so there are no elections there. Um, and within days, South Carolina votes unanimously for secession. Other states in the Deep South obviously choose to join him. Now, I just that's just um, an introduction. I want to go now to this question of why people fought why they were willing to fight, and in particular why in the South the majority of white Southerners owned no slaves, right? So the question is why did they fight? What was this about? Because the Civil War was clearly about slavery and secession was clearly about slavery, and secession was also about race. Slavery was at the heart of Southern sectional ideology, and the centrality of slavery as a way of life for the planters, led this drive to find a sort of southern identity. Southern slaveholders and their defenders were never shy about slavery. In their speeches, they repeated time after time that their belief that this nation had been created for white men, that slavery deserved protection from the federal government, that their slaves were happy, and that slavery was legal and constitutional and moral. One Georgia delegate to the secession convention in Georgia spoke forcefully about the danger of the North of the North to this institution. Mr. Lincoln has declared eternal hostility to slavery, he said, and it signifies that in the future this party will, to the utmost of its ability, harm slavery. This party hates slavery. That is the word, hate slavery. <clears throat> Unquote. In fact, pro-slavery ideology became even more central to white Southern identity during the war than even before. Leaders throughout the South proclaimed slavery as the most compelling reason for Southern independence. As one Georgia editor wrote in 1862, quote, Negro slavery is the South, and the South is Negro slavery, unquote. It is only in the late 19th century, around 1890, that the concept in this, you know, this sort of romanticized, sentimentalized notion of the lost cause gets invented. That's when the notion of states' rights enters into the language of why, you know, of what the South was about. Um, and that language of, of states' rights, which then infiltrated textbooks for the next hundred whatever years, um, really was a process of eradicating history of slavery, of, of building this fake, this, this fake history that somehow um, Southerners were talking about states' rights. But if you go and look at the secession debates, if you read Southern editors and journalists and leaders, it's always slavery and it's also racism, right? Because they bring up constantly the fear of, of a society with amalgamation, which of course was the 19th century term 
for the sexual mixing of whites and blacks. So then we go to the question of why Southerners fought. The South, like the North, was becoming increasingly unequal in the antebellum era. In 1830, um, approximately two-thirds of white Southerners owned no slaves. By 1860, three-quarters of Southern whites owned no slaves. So slaveholding was becoming more the province of an elite few, right? So in other words, 1830, one-third of Southern whites owned slaves, but by 1860, only a quarter of Southern whites owned slaves. So the vast majority do not own slaves, and moreover, the vast majority are losing access to owning slaves. Society is becoming more unequal, just like it's becoming more unequal in the North with the spread of industrial capitalism. More people go downwardly mobile in, with the spread of industrial capitalism than go upwardly mobile. That's, and so then the question becomes even more of an imperative. Well, then why? Why, if Southern whites are losing ground, why would they fight for the rich man? Why would, you know, why would they fight for the rich man's war, as it were? Well, there are many reasons to understand the linkages among whites in, in the South and why, uh, why so many would, would sign up for the Confederacy. Now, it's also interesting and true that during the war, the class cleavages of the South that are all too apparent to us as we just look at the numbers do become more apparent. There is a lot of desertion by poor white Southerners um, during the war from the, from the Confederacy Army. There's a lot of resentment for the, these rich whites, right, the slaveholding class who can, just like rich people in the North can, get out of serving um, in, the, in the Army. In the South, they had the 20 Negro Law, or as it was known, the 20 Negro Law, which said that any man who owned 20 slaves or more didn't have to serve. Just like in the North, there was that you could pay the $300 commutation um, fee and find a or find a replacement and you didn't have to serve in the Union Army, right, once the draft was instituted. The draft, of course, gets instituted in the Confederacy very quickly. I mean, one of the ironies of the Civil War is that the Confederacy, which, you know, in later formulations was supposedly about states' rights, doesn't allow for states' rights, really. It's a much more centralized state. It's a much more authoritarian state than the Federal Union is. But there are these powerful forces that linked um, poor and white, uh, you know, wealthy whites and what were known as plain folks, as they came to be called in the South. First of all, there were relationships of kin. Let me just say that there were relationships of kin. Rich and poor white, you know, Southerners were often related. Very often before a young man could own slaves or take over his father's plantation, he really was a non-slaveholder, as it were. Um, poor, poor whites did have relatives who were slaveholders. Um, there was a sense of localism, people who lived in small rural areas who all knew each other by first name. So that also created certain kinds of bonds, at least they th so they thought. Um, there, of course, was the politics of deference in the South much more than in the North, where you basically paid deference to your, to your betters. Um, and there was, of course, these ties of democracy, a white man's democracy, where being white meant we could all partake in voting, even if you know, you didn't have an equal chance of getting elected. So in a sense, of course, it is racism that binds them together. And it's also a notion about upward mobility, because when you think about those territories, which ostensibly everybody was fighting for, right? It's about what the territories meant to the average white man 
be it north or south. And for the average southern white man, what it meant was, particularly in an era of he was losing ground economically, it meant the chance that maybe he too could be upwardly mobile. And to be upwardly mobile in the, in the south meant to become a slaveholder. Maybe he too, if there was land available, could, could get some cheap land and then buy those slaves that slave owners were dying to sell because they had already a surplus of it. Um, and that speaks to um, what northern men were fighting for. The average northern man also really responded to the issue of the territories, right? I mean, after all, the motto of the Republican Party was free soil, free labor, free men. What did that mean? Free soil, meaning territory free of slavery, right? Where free labor, meaning men who weren't slaves, would go, would create free men, which meant men who no longer were wage laborers. Free soil for free labor would create free men. That's why they went to war. They believed that their prospects of upward mobility, or mobility, I should say, which in the context of industrial capitalism and the spread of wage labor meant maybe I can escape wage labor. These are men, just like in the South, who, who are the uh, descendants of generations that taught them that the only real freedom was to be an, a property owner. It didn't necessarily mean land. It could mean a shop or a business or something, but it meant to own property and not to work for someone else, right? To be a dependent was to be unfree. Certainly, Jefferson thought so. He thought the only people, if you didn't own property, he said you basically lacked freedom. And that's also what made slaves more despised. They were the essence of dependent beings. Nothing could be more despised than early Republican ideology. Obviously, I'm talking about small r, um, Republican. So in the South, you had all these interrelationships, but I just want to say something about unionist sentiment. And that is, there were pockets in the South where there was very strong unionist sentiment. And this was not, does not mean that they were not uh, pro-slavery. It meant that they were thinking of, they had a different approach to the strategy of preserving slavery. Would it be best to stay in the Union to preserve slavery, they, they would argue. Um, and then there were pockets of areas where, of poor people who resented the power, the political and social and economic power of the slaveholders. They were, there were pockets of Unionist um, sentiments there. Um, there were those who were Unionists because they were fearful of uh, labor competition from blacks. Um, so there were various reasons why in diff different areas of the South there was strong unionist sentiment. But often it really did mean it was a different strategy for keeping slavery alive. And for most of them it was what one historians have called conditional unionism. In other words, it was, it was the basis for how best to preserve slavery and we try it first and see how it goes, unionism, right? Obviously, they didn't win out. Okay. I want to give some background first to Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg um, was fought six months after Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which he did on July 1st, 1863. And as Lowen points out, when he had that famous exchange with Greeley, Horace Greeley, and he wrote those words that have often been taken out of context, you know, I would save the Union if I had to do whatever. Um, that was already, he had already written, he had already drafted the Emancipation Proclamation, so he knew what he was going to be doing. Uh, by, the battles of Gettysburg was a key, a key battle, because Lincoln knew that he 
could not really speak about emancipation until the North had a significant victory. North wasn't doing so well in the beginning of this war, as we know. Um, and the losses, of course, at Gettysburg were enormous. There were uh, 23,000 on the federal side, 20 to 28,000 on, on the Confederate side. Um, when he arrives to give this speech, is a sweltering July heat, decomposing bodies were everywhere, some of them buried just barely underground. Some of them had been re-exhumed by relatives who were looking for loved ones or by poachers just looking for valuable things. The residents of Gettysburg had to deal with the rotting horse flesh and man flesh, thousands of fermenting bodies, I hope you're getting your appetite for lunch here, um, with gas distended bellies. For hygienic reasons, about 5,000 horses were burned. There were about 8,000 bodies scattered over the battlefield. Um, it was suffocating. These soldiers and Confederate prisoners and dragoon civilians were trying to slide the bodies under some dirt. Um, householders had to plant around the bodies in their fields and garden and brace themselves to move a rotting corpse yet to another place. There was a lot of discussion even then about building a, a kind of, you know, a, a, a cemetery, but there were people who wanted to find their own loved ones and drag them back to, um, to their own states. Um, but there was a decision to create a cemetery there on the battlefield. This is 19th century Americans who have a particular fascination with death in general and cemeteries in particular. But let me go back a little, mention that the, the battle itself, James McPherson, great historian of all battles of the Civil War, considers Gettysburg the greatest battle because it did reverse the tide of this apparent Confederate victory you know, swing. Um, if the Confederate forces had won at Gettysburg, it might have split the United States in two, establishing a precedent for future secessions. Um, it would have certainly been the end of the world's greatest democracy. Um, it would have confirmed the belief of Europeans, uh, of monarchists um, and aristocrats that democracy was a bad idea and wouldn't endure. Um, instead, the Union triumph at Gettysburg revived the hope that a self-governing nation could survive, right? Um, so on the day that Lincoln was asked to give an address at Gettysburg, um, he spoke on a raised platform there. The crowd was approximately 20,000 people. As I mentioned, the burial site was incomplete. Again, he's there to dedicate this cemetery that they have agreed that they will do, right? Um, the marshals are trying to keep the thousands of people um, out of the work of the burying that continues to go on. Edward Everett was invited to speak, and Lincoln was invited only to deliver, quote, a few appropriate remarks to open the cemetery. But he used the occasion, as we know, to deliver arguably one of the most important documents, what becomes one of the most important documents in American um, history. His delivery went from 2 p.m. to 2.03 p.m. It's 10 sentences long. It has 272 words. Uh, he wrote two drafts. He didn't write it on the back of an envelope, despite popular myth. The crowd listened. They weren't even bored, even though they had listened to Edward Everett speak almost for two hours. People had much longer attention spans, as we know, in the 19th century. Uh, the Democratic press was quite hostile to his talk. The Republican press and the general popular reaction was positive. 
Um, he emphasizes the word nation in this talk. He used it four times. He never uses the word union. This is a very co carefully constructed speech. I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, Lincoln is every historian's favorite president in American history. But one of the reasons why he's my favorite is he wrote all his own speeches. Now, when you look at Lincoln's first inaugural address, he used the word union 20 times. So there has been a sea change in the fact that now he doesn't use the word union, but he uses the word nation. The address doesn't mention Gettysburg. It doesn't mention slavery. It doesn't mention the Emancipation Proclamation. The task of the address from Lincoln's point of view was to preserve a system of self-government. Lincoln was not talking about suffrage for African Americans. And it is even more important than maybe anything else I've said that he doesn't refer to the Constitution but he refers to the Declaration of Independence. Because as we know, almost every advance or claim for furthering the freedom of people in this country has always gone back to the Declaration of Independence. Not a legal document, not a binding document, because the Constitution doesn't say anything about freedom. And the word equality doesn't exist in the Constitution before the 14th Amendment, right? That's not a concept that the framers of the Constitution would have even conceived of. Lincoln repeatedly asserts the right of revolution, the right of any people to throw off or revolutionize their existing form of government. And he refers to the Declaration in other places as this great charter of freedom, right? And for him, what was important about the union that is created, if you will, by the Declaration of Independence um, was, was that it, it, gave, it gave the important moral values Right? Because there's nothing about freedom in the Constitution. The Constitution's just a working document to set up the structure of government. Right? As the beginning of the Constitution says, in order to form a more perfect union. That's only referring to the fact that they had formed a pretty imperfect one the first time around. Right? So now they're getting together to just try and see if they can put together a form of government um, that is going to hang together. I wanted to don't deny me this. I need to read you the Declaration, the Gettysburg Address, so that we can. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who have here, who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether together fitting and proper that we do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, no long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from those honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. 
and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. I get goosebumps. I don't know about you. There are a lot of key terms here. And given what I said before, you can see in with the ways in which he is bringing into it the Declaration of Independence, right? The notion of a government of the free, conceived in liberty, right? Um, the, the notion that he's talking about a new birth of freedom. A new birth of freedom means nothing but the emancipation of slaves. That's why freedom is now redefined. That's why the nation is now redefined. That's why this is such a momentous document, because it articulates that this is now a nation of truly expanded freedom, because it's a nation without slavery. That in fact, and he says it's unfinished work. We've only just begun. You can't just start, you don't just emancipate and then the work is done. That there's a lot of, um, that, that, that the protecting of this government is all important. Because for Lincoln, the reason why it was critical to save the Union was not because of some abstract notion that the Union should be big or that it should reach to the Gulf of Mexico for any particular reasons, but because he knew, like every American then knew, this was an experiment. It was only 70 years young. It wasn't doing very well. All of Europe had been waiting for it to collapse and crumble from the beginning. They thought it was crazy. You can't have governments run like this. You need hierarchy. You, need, you can't have democracy, which they equated with mob rule. And to try and keep together a, govern, a, a government of self-government, of a government by, for, and of the people, in order pr to protect the freedom of people, Lincoln knew you could not just allow states to leave when it suited them. Nothing would have been an abandonment of the slaves more. To abandon the slaves would have been to allow secession. I don't think that Lincoln could have lived with that, apart from his clearly stated and often enumerated notions of understanding how the, what the Constitution meant, that states were not sovereign. They had given up some sovereignty to create the Union, to create the United States of America. Power is a zero-sum game. You can't ha be part of the United States of America and still be a separate nation state. doesn't work that way. Each state, when they ratified to enter into the Union, gave up some power. They had to, otherwise, it, it would be Yugoslavia. And Lincoln understood that if you, allow, if you did not hold it together, there would be no way that that government would survive. Once it had broken apart, it would never survive. There could be no lib, you know, government dedicated to liberty, certainly not when those most in need of protection of liberty had been taken away and offered no protection. There would have been no way to abolish slavery and allow secession. Um, I think I'll end there, unless people want me to go on and on. I've been known to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs>